Hey everybody, it's Kristen again, and I am here to introduce our newest episode on nursing research. I was able to sit down with Drs. Cheryl Cronin and Paul Clark to just talk about nursing research, its role in evidence-based practice, and its role here at Baptist Health Louisville. Um, there are two very interesting and engaging individuals. I really enjoyed my time speaking with them. And despite Dr. Cronin's persistence that research is not a fascinating subject, I did find it to be very fascinating, um, especially listening to them talk about their current projects. Um, so I did want to introduce both Dr. Cronin and Dr. Clark so that you all are aware of why I chose them uh, as guests for the podcast. Dr. Cheryl Nones Cronin is currently a consultant for nursing research and evidence-based practice. Uh, she attended the University of Pittsburgh, University of Louisville, and University of Kentucky, comprising her bachelor's, master's, and doctorate in nursing. She has been a professor of nursing at Bellarmine University and chair of the graduate nursing program there. She retired from full-time teaching in 2019. She served in a joint appointment as nurse researcher at Jewish Hospital along with her teaching. And that was prior to cons her consulting role here at Baptist Health Louisville. And Dr. Paul Clark is a nurse scientist here at Baptist Health Louisville part-time and part-time at uh, University of Louisville. So he has been um, incorporated into our Innovative Learning and Development Department as a resource, and as he will tell you in our interview, a research Sherpa <laughs> to help our staff navigate the world of research and to really um, usher us through that process. He spent uh, the bulk of his career in emergency nursing and serves on advisory boards and councils related to emergency nursing and uh, has multiple fields of interest with his research. So I was so um, excited and happy to have both Dr. Cronin and Dr. Clark as my guests. Here's my interview with them. Okay, well, welcome, Dr. Clark, Dr. Cronin. Thank you so much for being here. It's great Thanks being here. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, I wanted to do this episode because I think nursing research is a very um, underrated part of nursing. I think research requires so much um, diligence and distance, I think, at times. You know, you guys have to go off into your little work areas and just <laughs> put your layer. nose to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> your layer. <Yeah. laughs> um, and so it's not visible to those at the bedside, um, although the evidence is. So I wanted to really shine some light on the great work that you all do. So, um, and what better way than to ask you about the process? Um, and so my first question is, um, what do you believe nursing, why do you believe nursing research is important? Well, I don't believe that you can provide or that I can provide safe or high quality patient care without evidence. And a lot of times we rely on evidence of professionals. So. I'll go to the charge nurse. I'll go to one of the senior nurses who's been working in the unit a lot longer than I have. My background's emergency nursing. I did emergency nursing for five years. So we have a variety of professionals that are always available. Physicians, respiratory therapists, our unit clerks were a great source. Our housekeepers were a great source because I see housekeepers and they have a highly visible part of our unit. But a lot of times they were performing a service and patients didn't pay attention to them. So they would say things to each other or to their family members and the housekeepers would come out and say things. So fly on the wall. Exactly, kind of. exactly. So I would listen to that input, but that's the lowest level of evidence. Her professional opinion is like six on a scale of one to six. It's evidence, but it's not strong. So to get high quality evidence to show that there can be a change at either the bedside, like in an inpatient unit or stretcher side, which is in the emergency department, we rely on research. And it's not just one research study, but several research studies that they can then um, combine into one like a systematic review or a meta-analysis where it takes all of those results and combines it into um, kind of a digested body of information 
that is the strongest. And that's the, the top level. But that's why I got into research was to basically generate knowledge that improves care with high level evidence. Awesome. And if I could just add to that, I, it's an example that I liked to use when I talk about uh, particularly evidence-based practice research, translating it to, to patient care, is that if we think about the way things, we some things that we used to do, and, and since I'm a very old critical care nurse, I'll give you two examples. So a um, long time ago, when I was a first in my nursing career, when a patient developed a pressure ulcer, skin breakdown, the um, prevailing theory was that to, in order to help that wound to heal, we needed to keep it as dry as possible. And so a whole little science grew about how can we keep these wounds dry, and we used to do things like paint them with Maalox and put them under a heat lamp. We used to use hair dryers. Oh yeah. And all these things, because you know, if they were bone dry, we thought they would heal. Well, lo and behold, only it's only been through research findings that we've discovered 180 degree turn. Oh no, they are best healed when they're, when they're kept moist. And so now we have a whole science of what's the best way to keep wounds moist so that they heal better. But if we weren't doing that research, we would never have discovered that. And we would wonder why people's wounds weren't healing mm -hmm. still to this day. Um, so that was that's one good example. I think another example that I've seen is that um, when we put in enteral feeding tubes, so long ago, again, when a patient needed feeding, we didn't have the little small bore tubes. We would have just regular Salem sumps, to, which are typically used to drain the stomach, and we would just feed through them. And so when we put those in to determine that they are in the right spot, we could inflate in, in, uh, some air and listen with a stethoscope over the stomach and you could hear the gurgle and really uh, only in very rare circumstances was that not accurate. It was, it was a good way to do it without exposing a patient to multiple x-rays. So that's the way we had always used to confirm placement. Well, when we got these little small board feeding tubes, we continued to try using air insufflation to confirm placement. Well, lo and behold, what we discovered is that it didn't work so well with that. And we were getting a lot more placements into lungs, you know, into just, you know, and that obviously the biggest issue that we don't want to be feeding patients into their lungs. And so it was only with a long kind of history of research where we've learned that, first off, that's not an accurate way, um, that pH is better, that there are some other some other strategies that have been tried and with, you know, mixed success. And I actually just read a, a study recently that the electromagnetic um, uh, insertion, you know, devices and everything, they're still finding problems and that the, they went, the particular study I looked at went through, I don't know how many uh, adverse uh, effects reports and determined that user operator error, if you will, was uh, an overriding issue. And so there's a whole going to be more work done to try and, you know, clarify that. So again, it's that history of research over time that helps us to determine what's working, what's not working, and what's actually the better way to do it. So the electromagnetic, that's like a core track? Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. Where they put the, the sensor on yeah. top and see it go mm -hmm. through. The, yeah. Okay. So what is the difference between nursing research and other genres of medical research? Well, in terms of um, methods, if you will, there's not a lot of difference. Um, while most nurse researchers don't do what we call bench science, which is in a laboratory with rats or, you know, whatever other kind of uh, study, but at the cellular level, there are still some that are doing that. Mm -hmm. The majority of what we do in research, so in nursing research, is focused strictly on nursing care or what's within what like I, I like to say the purview of nursing. 
So, you know, we're not doing medical research in terms of we're not doing drug testing, we're not testing um, investigational devices and things like that, but what we are doing is looking at the provision of nursing care or those issues of concern to nursing and trying to shed light on those and determine best practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. There are, I was looking at a journal a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, and it had um, a researcher that was looking at the efficacy of a drug or whether a drug worked well in um, a certain patient population. And that was a nurse running that, that study. So we do do um, drug and device studies, but I think our main focus is how do we improve nursing patient care? And nursing science is different than medical science is different from respiratory therapy science. You know, all of our healthcare professions, we have very specific um, bodies of knowledge. And so while we aren't limited to just the patient care environment, most of our research is, you know, focused on how do we improve not only patient care, but some of the areas that I've looked at are how to improve um, the uh, workplace environment for nurses. So how to reduce bullying, how to reduce lateral violence, how to improve engagement, nursing engagement, or reduce burnout based on manager behavior. Um, so there's there's a lot of things we do, not just for patients, but for nursing as a profession and for actually all of us, the nurses, physicians, all of us that work together in that uh, healthcare environment. Absolutely. And I think, you know, being a nurse, the questions that you're going to ask are informed by the fact that of your nursing experience. Mm-hmm. I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, every, even if you're doing multidisciplinary research, each researcher is going to come at the question from a different perspective because of their experience and, you know, their education and, and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. so as I was talking with Dr. Clark and Dr. Cronin, I started to wonder, how do researchers get that idea? What did they want to find out? Where does that question come from? And so I asked them. Well, it's generally, I mean, at least from my perspective, it's not like a, oh, out of the blue, here it comes. You know, usually for most, I would say most researchers have what the, what we would call a line of research. So you're interested in a particular area, whether that be wound care or, you know, patients with cardiac issues or, you know, whatever your interest happens to be. And then when you start your research, you typically are working in a general area and then beginning to build a body of research where one studies results actually lead to more questions and and that's actually a lot of the ways that research continues is because no matter how much research you do and how much you think you have determined there's always more questions come to light as a result of that and so then that's often fodder for future studies that's so true yeah so in the academic environment so i'm an assistant professor at the university of louisville and um the tenure track requires that you have a trajectory of research, meaning um, over a five to 10 year period, how are you going to, how is your research going to be pointed? So generally it starts off finding a study and finding information that's so compelling that it kind of generally moves itself, or you find an area of funding because funding is important in that environment, at least at University of Louisville, to, that helps direct that program of research. But one study does build on the other, which is why it's a trajectory. It's not like it doesn't go left and then right and then up and then down. Generally, it moves in, in one direction. And I could give you an example that I'm a mem- I'm an advisory board member on the Emergency Nursing Research Advisory Council, which is the Emergency Nurses Association or ENA's research um, arm. And we did a study in 2017 um, wondering about staffing in the uh, emergency nursing environment. And what that study let us to understand was that there was some bullying that went on in the workplace. So the next study we did was to find out how do is is bullying or uh, uncivil behavior uh, prevalent in the emergency department, which we know it is, because wherever there are human beings, there is bullying. Mm-hmm. There's bullying. There's bullying in places of worship. There's bullying in bowling alleys, in academia, in nursing. I mean, and it just it's just a human thing. So that led us to develop our next research question was, well, is there a model of workplace incivility, which we then built and then tested and we're continuing to test, which led us to understand that 
we need to stop the bullying in the workplace. So we said, well, how are charge nurses trained? And we found there is no training for charge nurses. They just say, you get along with the manager, you'll be great, shadow with Maria, and then in four shifts, you're a charge nurse. So we're, we're, you know, it's one of the more key positions, but there's not a whole lot of training. So now our next research project, so what we did was we asked emergency nurse charge, emergency, emergency nursing charge nurses and staff, what is the most important aspect of you working with the charge nurse? And now we're developing a training process and we're bringing in that bullying piece, right? So we, we found both there is no training for charge nurses and the charge nurses can be involved in bullying. So we're adding that bullying component into this charge nurse training component. So the trajectory did shift a little bit. I mean, we started off over here with staffing, but then we got into bullying and in civil behavior and the theoretical model and then training. Mm. So sometimes research questions drive in a very specific direction and sometimes you turn right and just keep going, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One other thing I would say though, that is many of the really good questions, research questions about nursing practice come from bedside nurses. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, for a long time and even now still the case, the majority of research is kind of has been housed at the university level. I mean, there that's where you've got the people with the best preparation to do it and the resources and the support and mm -hmm. all those kinds of things, which it makes sense. But what we find is there is on occasion if the, the academic researcher isn't working closely with the, a nurse, you know, at, at the bedside with nursing staff, that their questions may not be what's really important for nurses at the bedside. And so obviously they might say, oh, that's really interesting, but I'm going to, this is what I need to know. Mm -hmm. And so I think now that we're starting to see more research that's either being generated or at least informed by nurses who are in nursing practice, I think that helps to strengthen the kind of questions that we ask. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really key, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, anything can be interesting, but it needs to be relevant. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, you're spending a lot of money to support a research project, perhaps. You want to make sure that what you're doing is going to actually be used. In yeah, some have way. some application. For mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. So it's not been very long that bedside nurses have been as involved in the research process. What what brought that about? Right. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of factors, but the one that I kind of always point to is the Magnet Recognition Program uh, that's um, sponsored through the American Nurses Credentialing Center. Um, that Because that program, as part of the standards that um, hospitals are asked to meet um, to, to get that Magnet Recognition is the fact that that um, nurses are involved in the conduct and dissemination of research findings in their facility. And uh, really that having been in hospital nursing over a long period of time, that's probably the one factor that I can point to that really kind of helped to uh, accelerate that movement. So there is actually a research study that is ongoing in our perioperative department that I will be doing an episode on later. So that's why oh. I know a little bit about it. And um, it made me think of a question. So the researchers are looking to measure some things that there is not a validated tool to measure. Mm -hmm. And so they have developed one. And I'm just wondering um, what the process is to get that to be considered a validated uh, tool. It, it, well, it's pretty lengthy. That's what slows us up. Yes, yeah. right, right. Um, I've been involved in development of a couple of tools, and so there the process because in having previously been um, a pro nursing professor and working with graduate students, uh, you know, and even now working with with nursing staff, sometimes you know, we I just kind of have to hold my breath when I hear somebody say. I said, well, how are you going to measure that? And they'll say, oh, I'm going to develop a tool. Uh, probably not the best idea because of the, the length and, and effort that it takes. Because typically you want to start out by reviewing the literature in depth, um, perhaps doing some qualitative research where you're actually interviewing people about 
whatever the phenomenon is, to sort of identify the key elements of that particular concept. So like one of the tools that I helped um, to develop is a tool that measures um, care, nurse caring behaviors, which is based on Watson's theory of, of nursing care. And so we developed a whole kind of a laundry list of items that we felt like represented her 10 curative factors. Well, then we put those through a panel of experts to review to determine whether or not they believed that these questions looked valid based on their knowledge of the, um, the theory and, and reading the, the items. So then once we had that list kind of honed down, then we did testing with um, some patients and we tested those that those items for reliability and validity and came up with at least what we felt like was a fairly good reliable tool to start out with but over time it's only through that repeated testing of other researchers giving you feedback adding more data to do further analysis of the tool that it's really gets honed down and so when we talk about a tool being reliable and valid that typically means going to the if you find a tool you want to go to the, the literature to determine has this tool in fact been tested thoroughly mm -hmm. because if not what you may find in your study may be actually what you find, or it may be the result of inaccurate or you know error in te in uh, measurement. You know, I always like to talk with, with students about the fact, like you know, your bathroom scale. You know, you you get on it, you look at it, you don't really like the weight, so you move it, and then you get on again, and then you kind of <laughs> lean to the right, and you know the. The weights keep changing, and if you've got an instrument that's not reliable, that's what you're going to get, and so you don't really know. So uh, my, my tip or, or um, recommendation is always when you know what you want to study, you know, and you're trying to determine how you're going to measure your outcomes, always go to the literature first and try to find a tool that's already been developed because, you know, there are people whose entire careers basically are are focused on developing tools mm -hmm. and generally most staff nurses or you know most nursing students don't have that kind of background mm -hmm. and so always better to find a tool that's already been developed that if if it reflects what you're interested mm -hmm. in so. the reliability and validity piece i've always explained it in terms of the validity pieces does it accurately measure what is needing to be measured so for instance if i weigh 175 pounds and I step on the scale and it says that I weigh 185 pounds. And then I step on the same scale and it says 185 pounds. Well, it is reliable. I'm sorry, I kind of got ahead of myself. Reliability is, is consistency. Okay. So validity is accuracy. Reliability is consistency. Uh, so it consistently weighs me at 10 pounds more than I actually am. It's reliable. It's going to reliably overweight me 10 pounds, but it's not accurate because I actually weigh 175 pounds. And that validity and reliability is what gives the researcher the sense that the statistics that they're deriving from that and the results that they're deriving from that are accurate and show that what actually they're measuring is what is actually there. Because really, we're, we're trying to figure out what's out there, what's, what's the unknown piece. And so we take a sample and do some measurements. You know, we find out, are you actually engaged in the workplace? That'd be a measurement. And then we have this tool that's reliable and accurate. We know that it'll accurately measure engagement, and we know that it's reliable in different groups of people, different parts of the country, different parts of the world. And so when we get our results, we're pretty sure that in the sample, that's kind of what's going on out here in the population. So and, and that's, I think, what takes the longest is getting that reliability and validity, because without that, it's... It's like, right? yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean shooting in the dark. it's opinion. Yeah, it is. You're, you're exactly right. It's opinion. Yeah, yeah. Very low level evidence. Yeah. And I think that's such an important distinction. I mean, the world, especially the nursing world, has been exposed to so much with the pandemic and COVID and all of this like emergent need for research to develop vaccine to figure out why and what to do and what's best for these patients you know I think it's 
been a lot of misinformation has been unfortunate byproduct of all of that. And there's been a sense I, I've heard at least, you know, I've through osmosis, I think <laughs> I've, I've felt that there is a lack of confidence in the process and a lack of, um, or a, a feeling that it's just so-and-so's opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so to hear this about how a tool is tested and that that's, I think, really important information to share. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just what somebody thinks is true. And so they manipulate the research to show that, mm-hmm. you know, I think that is a misnomer mm-hmm. among nurses. Um, well, but particularly uh, bedside nurses, I think you will hear them say, you can find research to back anything. Well, and you know, the reality is when you look at a body of research, not all studies are going to show exactly the same thing. Right. I mean, if they did, that'd be wonderful. But typically in any body of research, there's going to be some studies that show one thing and some that show another. And so that's part of that issue of evidence-based practice is to take that body of research and say, okay, in general, what are the findings? What are the, you know, sometimes it's a matter of they just didn't have a large enough sample size to show that result or, um, you know, maybe their tools weren't as accurate. So there's always that I, that um, bit of judgment that comes into saying, let's look at all the evidence, let's determine overall sort of what is the general consensus and findings, Mm -hmm. because that's probably the best data we have to inform this particular practice, whatever it is. I I have to be careful when I'm asking for input. And this one person says, you know, you can find research that, you know, goes either way. And I'm reliably getting that information from that same person. That same person is always going to say, well, you can find research that proves anything. That person is reliable, mm-hmm. but not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so when I, so when I'm looking at the, when someone says something, it's not that people don't say things. I generally don't believe they, they say it to, for ill will, but I'm always double checking. I think, so Ronald Reagan popularized the phrase, um, trust but verify. And I think I trust what people say, but I also want to verify it because it may be reliable, but I want to check accuracy. Mm-hmm. Really good way to tie that up together. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so I wanted to shift gears just a little bit um, to learn a little bit more about each of you and what drew you to the field of research. Well, I, I you know I actually, you know, again, back when I first did my master's degree um, at the time, their research was generally required in most programs. And so I actually ended ended up doing a couple of studies as part of my master's work, which kind of got me interested. Um, And then when I went on for my doctorate, uh, you know, of course, obviously that is very research intensive. And so that's, that sort of gave me some more, some better background to be, um, to feel more skilled and more adept at doing research. Fortunately, once I finished my doctorate, I ended up going into a joint appointment where I continued my teaching career, but I also spent a good amount of time as a clinical nurse researcher. And that's, I think, really where my interest kind of blossomed, even though my career was not in the kind of trajectory that we previously talked about. It was up to a point, but then once you start working with nurses in the clinical setting, there's lots of different ideas, lots of questions, lots of directions that we have to go. And so helping them to take those questions, turn them into a research study, collect the data, find the answers, and then be able to make recommendations and oftentimes recommendations that could end up changing practice. That's what's so exciting. It's kind of like, you know, and especially, you know, for them to see them like, this is so cool. (laughs) It's like, you know, because, Let's face it, most people, when we talk about research, we, you know, like say, oh, yeah, I'm mm. research. <laughs> <laughs> I used uh, to laugh when I taught undergraduate research. I used to always say that um, my the best kind of student evaluations I can, could expect was ones that said, Dr. Cronin did everything she could to make a dull subject interesting. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, pretty much. But once they're involved in it, I think it makes a difference. And most people 
end up, I mean, you know, not a hundred percent, but a lot of them will get much more interested and see the, you know, see the excitement in, in what they're doing. So mm -hmm. I can see why that would draw you to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I was an emergency nurse in San Antonio, um, there was a PhD prepared nurse who taught at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio, which I think is now UT Health down in San Antonio. And we worked on several things together and she said, you'd be a great teacher. And I got um, involved in some research projects um, with another researcher at another PhD prepared nurse who was an academic nurse. So she taught and then did research and she did research in several units in our hospital and I was involved in that participatory action research. And they both kept saying, you should, you'd be a great teacher. And I was very interested in advanced practice, but at one point, and it's a, it's a long and not really interesting story, but I decided <laughs> I, it was pretty clear that I needed to go down the teaching route. So to, to teach in academic nursing at a university, it's a PhD is required. So I was kind of, I, research always intrigued me and interested me, but I was very interested in teaching. Um, and what has kept me in research is the team, uh, the teams that I work with. I love working in teams. So um, I've worked with the Emergency Nursing Research Advisory Council, and we've I, there have been several researchers, Dr. Uh, DNP nurses, PhD nurses, some people that were getting their PhDs while they were working with us. We've done a variety of research topics. We've looked at how um, uh, nursing emergency department nursing practices changed where cannabis is legalized and the differences that they've seen. Um, we've looked at bullying. Um, we've looked at um, how uh, asking questions about firearms at home, given the current political climate, um, how we have to get these regulatory questions asked, but then some of the fears that the nurses have about asking those programs, like, you know, you're not trying to take away my gun, are you? Like there's, there's, we, we've done a variety of emergency department research projects and it's always, it's so cool because there's all these very bright people from across the country that are working together. So that's, that's really super fun. And then I'm a nurse scientist here um, at Baptist Health. Baptist Healthcare pays University of Louisville uh, two days of my wages and benefits, salary and benefits. And I come here and help nurses at Baptist Health Louisville with um, research projects, evidence-based practice projects, and some quality improvement projects. And Cheryl, you were right. The, the bedside nurses know exactly the questions that are asked and sometimes know the solution, but they don't know the research process. So I know the research process, but I don't know their area. So a great part, I've done so much learning listening to how they practice nursing. For instance, I worked in the emergency department Emergency nurses are infamous for their dislike of birthing babies in the emergency department. I mean, we are so ready to get those patients as soon as we can, like over to L&D because whatever it is, it makes us very nervous. So I'm an emergency nurse. I'm working with the labor and delivery department, uh, labor and delivery and neonatal intensive care unit to do some research projects. And I'm learning a whole world of nursing terms. At one point in the meeting, I stopped them. I'm like, I don't even know what you all are saying. And I'm, we're all registered nurses, but they're speaking about um, um, uh, Gravid and what is it, uh, Para and Gravid, P1, G2. And I'm like, wait, 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 you know, what are, we, what are we saying here? The great thing is I can do the same with them. Like I can say things in research and they're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. IRBs, what's an institutional review board? So the way I kind of advertise myself on this team is that I'm the research Sherpa. So Sherpas are Himalayan mountain people who know the mountain. They know the weather, the climate, the mountain terrain. And mountain climbers come in and they want to climb the mountain. They want to climb it up. but And they've got the skill to climb mountains, but they don't have the skill in this particular area. So the Sherpas will tell them it's a clear sunny day. They're ready to climb. And the Sherpas like tent up. It's going to snow in about four hours. And they're like, it's a sunny day. And the Sherpa's like pitching the tent saying, I know you all can continue, but I'm getting in the tent. And four hours later, they're in a blinding snowstorm that would have killed them if they were up on the mountain. So the research Sherpa helps those, those nurses that know that terrain, that, that know that area of practice to get up that research mountain. You know, I can help navigate that. We can't do that work without each other. Mm -hmm. And that kind of teamwork is very exciting. Mm -hmm. So I really stayed in it research because of that, because of that teaming. Well, thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Could you share some of the projects you've worked on and what the results or outcomes were? Sure. 
since you were talking about it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I've done some things outside of Baptist healthcare, um, and then I, I'd like to talk about some things we've done here inside, you know, at Baptist. So um, we did we interviewed a group of emergency nurses at one of the local pediatric emergency departments to ask them how they wanted to um, debrief after a pediatric critical incident, which could be a death or it could be just a really bad trauma, and we, the group of us from U of L, which included some of our students, um, were alerted to this because uh, the nurses there were having a very difficult time managing the emotions there. And so the nurse manager brought us in to, to figure that out. And it was very interesting because one size fits all never works. And it seems not to work in this uh, department either. So some nurses told us, I need to take a break and walk out and get some fresh air, get a soda. I need to see the sunshine. Some of the nurses said, I just go home and curl up with my kids, you know, and some nurses said, I don't, I, in, in the case of a pediatric death, I will prepare the body and I deal with it there and then I get on to the next thing. And so, in other words, they were saying, not, don't tell us we all have to go to this debriefing. Like we might want to go, but we might not. Mm -hmm. So one size doesn't fit all. Mm -hmm. That was one of the more interesting pieces that came from that. Um, and that was published in the Journal of Emergency Nursing. Those results were, were published there. Um, let's see. One of the things that I'm working on now is um, Lauren Spurrier on 5 East, the manager there, um, went on marriage prep with her husband before she and her husband were married. And they did the five languages of love, which was part of the, of the marriage prep program. And she found out that there was also a five languages of appreciation in the workplace. And one of the things the evidence has shown is that when managers and leaders um, express gratitude and appreciation for their employees, it improves <laughs> engagement and lowers burnout. Um, so what we what is not out there currently is, does this specific five languages of appreciation in the workplace, which it's actually four, because the fifth is like touch, like embracing in that, and it's that's just a little, it's too, HR not friendly. So mm -hmm. the, there's four, actually four uh, in practice in case somebody knows these languages and is wondering oh, how are they going to do up five. Um, but they're going to, we're going to look and see over a period, we're going to do three measures, one initially, one at three months and one at six months to see if burnout lowers, workplace engagement improves and whether it helps their turnover rate decrease. So we're getting ready to launch that study. We haven't really launched it yet. Um, but that was all at Lauren's initiative. She called me and said, how can we get this off the ground? She got a $5,000 grant from the Baptist Health Foundation to fund the different measurement tools we're using. And, and um, I'm very excited to see the results of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is wonderful. Yeah. That, that makes me so proud of Lauren. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, a couple of other studies that are either in process or getting ready to start. Um, we... Um, Laura Mitchell, the clinical specialist in oncology nursing, um, has been working with the staff and the um, clinics who administer chemo to patients. Um, and, you know, obviously there are some chemo regimens that cause significant GI symptomatology. And one, you know, they, they have continuously tried to find ways to try and help patients uh, well, cope with it, but, you know, if they can prevent it even better. And they became aware of a, um, a medical amino acid food, which is actually a beverage um, that uh, has had shown some success. And so they are in, um, in the process of testing that product with uh, patients who, who are taking several different regimens uh, that are likely to develop GI symptoms. And so when the patient um, first shows significant symptoms, they start to take this beverage prior to their next dosage, and they're looking to see if that helps to decrease those symptoms, if it also helps to decrease the need for IV infusion of fluids, hospitalizations, things like that. So, I, you know, I think it's going to be, uh, we, we don't, we're just getting the data in now, so we, we still have a, a ways to go, but it'll be interesting to see whether or not that's been successful. Mm -hmm. Um, another thing that, that actually Paul and I did uh, last year, I suppose, 
was um, a Delphi study um, to try and identify kind of what are the nursing research priorities for Baptist Health Louisville to give us sort of a, a, a guide, if you will, to directions to take research um, in, in the near future. And so we um, developed, we had a panel of expert, clinical experts from around the hospital. We asked them to identify areas that they believed were, that needed re further research conducted. Um, and the Delphi process, it goes through several phases. But anyway, as a result of that, um, we identified like the top 25 um, issues that seem to be important uh, to, to the staff to uh, potentially address through, through nursing research studies. And no surprise in this day and age, and as you mentioned, alluded to before, after the, all of what everybody's gone through with COVID, um, most of, well, many of the top 10 were focused on issues of nursing turnover, nursing morale, um, and also the fatigue and uh, incidents of violence that nurses have, have been exposed to. And so as a result of that, the Nursing Research Council here has um, is going to be launching a study to further delve into that issue of workplace violence and whether or not nurses have confidence in dealing with incidents of patient and or family violence. Mm -hmm. um, that's something nationally that has continued to um, gain attention. Um, I was telling Paul, I just read a study the other day that said, um, based off a survey that was done by uh, Prescani, that it they estimated that every hour in the United States, two nurses have been assaulted or experienced violence or played violence, and which is, kind of stunning to think mm. about. And so we're trying to get more information about what's the experience of nurses here at Baptist. Um, we have some ed uh, some educational preparation currently being done to help um, the hospital staff deal with those kinds of situations. We want to look at is are they effectively helping nurses to feel more confident mm. and uh, some things like that. So does that include um, nursing assistants? Yeah. Okay. I would hope so. <laughs> they, they often are right there in the line of fire with mm -hmm. the nurses. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's a, that's a case of one study led to another study. And I would assume once we get this data back, we'll be asking the question that was raised in the study we're preparing to put, you know, put out there, which will inform our next study. So that kind of a, that develops that trajectory that I was talking about. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so I wanted to get a little bit, um, pick your brains about the history of nursing research because, you know, I think, again, it's not super well known. It, it might have been covered back in our cobwebs of nursing school, you know, mm -hmm. but I would like to know about how long nursing research has been informing our practice, you know, really actually been an influential piece of what we do as nurses. And then... You know, I wanted to touch on this phenomenon or conundrum that happens where um, scientific evidence would be more than enough to inspire change, we would hope. But oftentimes, despite compelling evidence, practice changes are poorly and slowly adopted. So why do you think there is such a gap between evidence and practice? And what can we do to close that gap? Big question. Mm -hmm. That is a big question. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to start off and then I'll, I'll, I'll refer to my colleague. <laughs> but when we talk about history, uh, I think everybody pretty much points to Florence Nightingale as sort of the very first nurse researcher. Um, in addition to everything else that she did um, when during the Crimean War, she collected just phenomenal amounts of data on all kinds of different factors and then began to look at relationships between that data to try and identify issues that were leading to problems with wounded soldiers. And a lot of those ended up focusing on hygiene issues. And that was sort of one of her primary uh, contributions. And an interesting fact that not a lot of people know is that she's actually a, a fellow of the Royal Academy of Statisticians in England um, because of her 
background and her her data work, and she's developed a couple of different um, statistical graphs that we still use today. So she's really kind of a phenomenal woman in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, after Florence Nightingale, there was kind of this big gap in time because for a long, long time, nurses didn't really have the education. Um, to even understand research or know anything about doing research. Um, the permission to get the oh, education. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So really, um, it wasn't until we started to see uh, advanced education in nursing, master's and doctoral programs, early on, um, a lot of nurses who had gone on for advanced education were getting their degrees in like education, sociology, you know, different areas. And so a lot of that earlier research, instead of focusing on nursing care, it focused on how do you educate nurses? You know, what are the best characteristics of nurses? And all focused on nursing in the profession rather than what the profession was doing and how best to do it. So once we started to see field, the um, educational programs in nursing, we started to see more movement on that front in terms of beginning to really look at research on nursing care. Um, what we found, however, that for, again, for quite a while, most of that research, and actually really even now I would guess probably the majority of research, is still done primarily uh, by ac academic nursing, you know, uh, from universities. And for a long time, and that, you know, Nurses at the bedside might say, you know, find out about something that was that was discovered in a study and say, oh, isn't that interesting? And then we just keep doing it the way we've always been doing it <laughs> because there aren't good ways to kind of bring the two together, like you said. Um, and really, it was sort of in the early 90s that we started to see what's now called evidence-based practice. That movement began, and there were a couple of factors, one of which being um, that the government got involved and said, you know, we're spending billions of dollars on healthcare research. And, and, and to be honest, it wasn't just nursing. It still is not just a nursing issue. Medicine, uh, pharmacy, everybody in practice, not necessarily using all the research findings that we're spending millions and billions of tax dollar dollars to taxpayer dollars to develop. Um, so they said, we've got to find ways to try and, and improve this. About the same time, the Institute of Medicine came out with kind of that landmark report of to air is human, where we first kind of shed light on the number of healthcare errors that were being made that were leading to patient deaths. And they followed that up with some additional study. And uh, one of their quotes that I think is, is really interesting is that they concluded that our best knowledge is not being implemented in patient care. And so as a result of that, we've seen a lot more organized, systematic efforts to try and move research more quickly into practice. Now, you know, I, I think the lag used to be like 17 years, and now it's probably down from that, but it's there's still a lag. Um, but I think one of the things that we've seen is professional organizations getting groups together to look at specific aspects of their practice. So like for critical care, um, I, uh, they have a research uh arm, if you will, and they pull together panels of, uh, of experts to look at research in specific areas and come up with practice guidelines based on the evidence. Um, and we see that in a lot of different different uh, groups, as well as in, in uh, clinical settings. And I think really that's kind of the best thing. I mean, we don't really want individual nurses to go and say, oh, I read this study, I'm going to do my, I'm going to do this a different way. Because speaking to what we did, we had mentioned earlier, the fact that not any one single research study typically is enough to really say this is the best way because you have to look at that body of evidence. But if we can get together a practice council, if we can get together an interest group that's focused on, let's say, wound care or um, nutritional issues or whatever it is, they can look at that body of knowledge make recommendations specifically that inform then our policies and procedures. And it's by doing that that it kind of gets codified into practice rather than, oh, that's this is a good idea, we'll do it, and then 
no, then you know eventually it just changes back. Mm -hmm. But if we get our policies and our procedures that are couched in in evidence, hopefully it will continue. And we'll you know we'll start to see some better progress. Mm -hmm. The airline industry has helped has really done a great job fixing this. Um, so a, a friend in the aviation industry said, if a plane lands in Dubai and a bolt cracks on the engine and they determine that it's a problem with the bolt, it's a manufacturing problem with the bolt, it wasn't an engine problem or a bad landing, that that information then gets disseminated across the world in a matter of hours so that anybody that has that type of aircraft can make a decision, do we need to pull that plane and remove those bolts and replace them? And it's that kind of reactive, quickly disseminated, um, it's not reactive, it's responsive, but quickly disseminated information can make a big difference in safety. I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, there was probably every year five, 10 plane crashes, you know, planes would blow up, planes would land wrong. Um, and a lot of that has been fixed. Another area is crew resource management, which is um, cockpit decision-making and really the whole entire crew from the baggage person, the person who loads baggage all the way up to the captain can make decisions as to whether a flight should continue or not. I think the problem is human beings are very different than bolts. So if you turn a bolt a certain way with a certain amount of torque, it's always going to go in the, the same way over and over again. But human beings will respond to medications, to behavioral therapy, to teaching very differently. So you could teach me something and I might learn certain parts of it and teach you the same thing and you would learn something different and we would both come at it not really knowing the full picture. So the the I think one of the problems we have is a dissemination problem. So academic nurses and researchers and funded people come up with all this great information and we put it into research journal articles and then those are put in databases and then they say until someone on a practice council says, this is ridiculous, we're having these really bad patient outcomes. So then at that point, what we do is we there's several models for finding the information and then translating that information. So there's an Iowa model, there's the ACE star model, there's the Johns Hopkins uh, model. And these are all very specific models that say, if you've got a problem, here's how you create a PICO question, which is the problem, the intervention, the comparison group, and the outcome. And you then look for, do a literature search based on your, your question, and then you find, that's the evidence-based practices, you find the evidence, you find 10 or 11 articles that really give you a good idea of how to fix that problem, because each article is going to have something different in it. Then, how do we translate that pro that solution into our patients here at Baptist Health Louisville? But that's, that's kind of time-consuming. We've got COVID, we've got staffing shortages, and it, it's time consuming. You know, there's not a lot of money to fund nurses for even a full day to spend on that topic. So one of the, I think, bottlenecks is we've got, we've got all the tools in place. It's the time to get the information from the nurses to the bedside. That's kind of where the bottleneck is. Because there's been plenty of studies saying what are the barriers mm -hmm. and time is usually time and kind of skill, knowledge, skills are the two main things, right? And what, what we know um, from the research is that most nurses, and, and again, nurses could be any discipline, um, when they're, they have a question in practice, they go to somebody they're working with and say, hey, what do you do about such and such? And that's what they do. They don't stop and look mm -hmm. to see, you know, so and I- certainly in the moment don't have to die right. that. That's why it's so imperative right. that we have already provided them that mm -hmm. and that they, you know, at least when I was practicing, I was always very, you know, grateful when there was a very clear mm -hmm. way forward mm -hmm. and always very frustrated when there wasn't. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, the other thing too, that we know, and, and this is a, an old study, but I'm sure we, we find similar kinds of things now that if you look at a practice over time, the further out from your basic education, whether that be medical school, which is what this particular study looked at, or nursing school, that over time, you're, you're keeping up with the most current stuff kind of de mm -hmm. decreases because you're further out from, mm -hmm. you know, kind of what's that cutting edge knowledge. Mm -hmm. And when you have um, time to devote mm -hmm. to learning. Right. Reading. Yeah. Right. Or we're making time to devote 
to learning. And many people don't just go to school. They, yeah. they do more than one thing. But. One of the ways to reduce those, one of the, one of the ways to get around that barrier are clinical practice guidelines. So I know uh, being on the, as a, on the emergency nursing research advisory council, we review emergency nursing clinical practice guidelines. We have a committee that synthesizes all that evidence and translates it into best practices. So it, you mentioned professional organizations yeah, earlier. I mean, critical care nurses, perioperative has, you know, AORN has guidelines. I mean, I think that's probably one of our best resources mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. is to say at least what they, you know, there, that is at probably the most current best practices if we can keep people you know, to, to look at those. But it's, you know, it's, 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 it tells the, the evidence behind the suggestions, but it doesn't translate it into the specific environment. And that's still a little bit of a barrier, right? Because that those may work in general based on those studies, but then when you bring it in here with this patient group, there might be some variances. So it, there's still that translation piece that, that has to happen. But no matter what, I think, you know, like as you said, with anytime you're dealing with human beings, there's always going to be variations and you can do something. And for 99% of patients, you'll get this outcome. There's always going to be a, some percentage that for whatever reason responds differently. And so, and I don't think there's any way to fix that best evidence or not. So, yeah. Well, and we hear a lot when talking about research and evidence about randomized controlled trials and which the research team is able to completely control all the variables. Well, somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking in absolutes. Maybe I should, uh, yeah, that's one thing about research. There are no absolutes. <laughs> that like, should be the. There are absolutely no absolutes. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the tagline of right. this episode. Um, but no, what I was going to say is that you know, in those environments, as much as possible, you're having the exact same intervention in the exact same way as very much as possible. And when you do that, you know, if we turn the patient with this exact log roll, this will decrease X, Y, Z. When that gets translated, it is best evidence to do it this way. I think that's where my interest lies is that the ability to carry that out mm -hmm. is not always possible. Mm -hmm. And it's not because it's not what people want to do. Well, and mm -hmm. not only that, but I mean, I, I was kind of being facetious, but not really, you know, anytime you do, what do you consider a controlled clinical trial, right? It's not like, you know, like a chemist who can be in a totally controlled and control every single factor except whatever it is they're studying. Anytime you're dealing with humans, you've got so many factors that there's no way to control everything. So you control what you can. But the problem lies when you try to take that and, and apply it in a real world situation and all those other variables are in play that's sometimes why you don't necessarily always get the same results. Right. Probably the best uh, way to try it, but again, you're always going to get some variation in those results. Yeah. One of my favorite movies is Apollo 13. Oh, yeah. Mm. And I think mm. often... We have a problem. <laughs> I think often about that scene where I think it's Billy Bob Thornton dumps a box of parts mm -hmm. and says, mm -hmm. "This is what we put got. this round the square peg into this round mm -hmm. hole or whatever it is it, but it it really drives home to me this concept that i would love to research and, and pursue is that you can know they could have created any type of machine that would have solved whatever that mm -hmm. problem was that was of all different kinds of material and different and better and work more efficiently and all these things but that's not what they had to work with right and to me, that's a really good metaphor of living in reality. This is what we have to work with. We have these nursing ratios. Mm -hmm. We have these kinds of equipment. We have these types of patients. Right. You know, so th that's to me, it's just so frustrating that there are barriers and the barriers are known. 
but what is the barrier to fixing those barriers? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what, well. That's, anyway. And when you said that earlier, I thought that's the piece that we haven't done. Yeah. We know the barriers, but what gets us over the barrier? Like, how can we get over those barriers? Well, I cannot thank you both enough for your very precious time to come and talk with me. And no matter what you say, I think this was a fascinating subject. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I mean, how else do we know? how to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. That's right. You got to know what it is before you can do it. Right. Absolutely. I hope you all enjoyed that interview as much as I did. It was really interesting to pick Dr. Clark and Dr. Cronin's brains about the field of nursing research and to learn a little bit more about what research is going on right here at Baptist Health. So if you, um, get a chance, please share the podcast with your colleagues. And um, I really do appreciate you listening. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Oracle is produced by myself and Sarah Woolwine via the Anchor podcast app and is distributed by the Innovative Learning Department. You can listen to Oracle anywhere podcasts are available, including Spotify and Apple podcasts. Thank you for listening. And remember, we are not what we know, but what we are willing to learn. Thank you and take care.